Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's event. Thank you to those of you who are here in, in the room, those of you who are joining us via the live stream, and those of you who will join us in the days to come via the recording. Today's seminar is on the European Green Deal, Farm to Fork Strategy for Sustainable Food. I'm going to now turn over to our moderator for today, who is Will Martin, a senior research fellow here at IFBRI. Welcome, Will. Thanks very much, Katala. It's a great pleasure um, to be here today. We have a really exciting program coming up. As you probably know, the European Union is the, the world's third largest producer of agricultural products, by far the world's last largest uh, importer of agricultural products from developing countries, um, and trader in agricultural products on the import and export side. And periodically, the EU reforms its common agricultural policy. Negotiations are underway for the agricultural, common agricultural policy from 2021 to 2027. And these negotiations are likely to lead to uh, a very fundamental reshaping of the policy focused on uh, equity uh, and environmental uh, implications. So, um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Tassos Haniotos from the European Commission here uh, to, to give his presentation. Um, and, uh, <coughs> Tassos, Tassos uh, is an old friend of IFPRI. He's served in very, very many capacities uh, in the European Commission. Um, his current portfolio uh, includes research, communications, and a wide range of other uh, responsibilities. He's served in very, very many different capacities within uh, the Commission, including the very large reforms, the fundamental reshaping of the common agricultural policy um, in 1992, um, which set the foundations for uh, the major reforms of global agricultural trade in the Uruguay Round. So um, it's a great pleasure now to hand over um, to Jo Swinnen, who will give a personal account um, introduction um, uh, to his old uh, friend and colleague, Tassos Haniotis. Um, thank you very much, Will, for this introduction. Uh, thanks, Tassos, for coming here. I thought I will just say uh, just a very few words because I've known Tassos for a long time. As uh, most of you know, I think I have been based much of my life uh, around Brussels. And uh, so I've come to know in him, um, me as mostly an outside researcher, although I spent three years working in the European Commission, but I was in the economics department, the economics and finance department, while Tassos has worked mostly in the agricultural uh, division <coughs> of the uh, European Commission. Um, he has been an, an amazing force for change in Europe. I mean, if you go back to the 1980s and then early 1990s, the European agriculture policy was often considered as one of the most distorting agriculture policy regimes that existed at that time. Uh, since then, there's been really dramatic ch policy changes in Europe, uh, first in the 1990s, where uh, Will referred to, which was came together with Uruguay, <coughs> the conclusion of the Uruguay Uruguay Round Agreement on Agriculture. 
And then later uh, in 2003, which, which is typically referred to as the Fisher reform, with the completely decoupling of the agricultural subsidies in Europe. And in both um, reforms, uh, Tassos played a very important role as an analyst. He has been probably arguably in Europe, certainly in European policymakers, the person who has been most, uh, I should say, most involved in bringing research into the policy discussions and using research to basically advising policymakers on what would be the best and most efficient way of having agriculture policies in Europe. So Tassos, I'm very happy to host you here today, or for IFPRI to host you here today, and I'm going to give you the floor. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much, uh, Joe. Uh, thank you, Will. It is, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be back in uh, Washington, D.C., because among other things, Tassos has spent four years in the EU delegation in Washington. Don't ask me how many years ago, but it were nice years. Uh, it's also a pleasure to make this introduction uh, on a panel uh, chaired and, uh, by Will and where you and Anna will participate. We are all uh, four professional friends that first started our professional friendship in the International Agricultural Trade Research Consortium. I don't know if this rings a bell to you, but trade research used to be more in function than it is today. Uh, I'm not sure that all of the ambitions we had were achieved. In some respects, one might claim that we have put uh, reverse gear in some of these developments. What I'm going to talk to you about today is something completely different. It is the fact that in the type of new challenges we're going to face, there is no luxury of putting reverse gear. I'm going to talk to you about the Green Deal, the Farm to Fork, and the Common Agricultural Policy briefly, but hopefully trying to identify the main challenges we have to face and the main priorities and actions we have to take. Uh, it has been 14 months ago, our then Director General uh, Jerzy Pleva spoke from this podium and explained to you where the cap was going. What we have had in the meantime is a debate uh, with a new commission which basic priority is to make the European Union the first carbon neutral part of the world by 2050. An extremely ambitious target which affects every aspect of our policies. So what you're going to see today is how do we expect to achieve that. And what I would like to do is first of all start with the characteristics of the global uh, food challenges and the global uh, world food system, because we're part of it. Now, the world food system has passed from a phase of solving economic and social problems by making food affordable and also abundant with an enormous increase of food productivity at the expense of the environment. It took several decades of realizing that what was happening in the 60s and 70s has a certain cost. The cost is real. We started measuring first in uh, water, soil, biodiversity, and more and more in air. And the world food system is also moving right now into a major transformation that allows us, provide us with the potential of solving simultaneously economic and environmental problems. Precision farming and digital economy, I'm going to focus about this, are elements that help that. But we also have the potential of increasing social tensions because there are huge gaps in terms of health, knowledge, the digital divide, urban versus rural areas, 
that affect this debate. In every major technological transformation, we have this. And we have this polarization among those that want to focus only about the positive aspects of technical changes and those that fear them. It's only natural. What is specific in terms of agriculture is the fact that we don't expect and ask farmers to change job. We want farmers to remain in their job and be different type of farmers, more knowledge-based. And by focusing on that, we can turn this challenge into a real growth strategy because it adds to rural areas additional, more knowledge-based jobs throughout the food chain. And by doing that, we answer to the big question, do we need to produce more with less in a positive way? Because that's a global challenge. Now, what are the main features of this global food system? I spoke before about the digital technologies, call it farming 4.0, call it whatever you want. Digital technologies and big data characterize practices throughout the food chain. And when we talk about these practices, we're not talking only about big farmers. In the Agricultural Outlook Conference that we organize every year in the European uh, um, Commission from DG Agri, we have brought in the last three years examples of agroecology, of conventional farming, and of organic farming that indicate the same thing. You can use this enormous amount of information that exists in a way that allows you to increase your economic efficiency, measured in yields or any other measure you want, reduction in costs, and reduce the, uh, the environmental footprint. These technologies are more neutral in size than others and help to mitigate environmental costs, but they, cap, they come with some significant gaps in knowledge, in applications, and especially in perceptions around these technologies. The debate about big data, who owns this data, is extremely important. So is the distinction that we need to make between the economic data that should remain confidential and belong to the farmer, and the data of the public good that should remain in the public domain. And they are, by the way, available in the public domain. And that's the, the farm part, if you want. On the fork part of the equation, there are very significant changes that characterize food demand and very significant shifts in the taste and preferences. These trends differ worldwide. In the developed world, we have the tendency to focus on our own taste and preferences and the very dramatic changes that happen there. For example, in all the developed world, red meat consumption is declining. This is not the trend worldwide. We also tend sometimes to create expectations uh, that do not always match facts. The debate in the livestock sector is typical. Not all the livestock sector is the same. It's not the same to be extensive or intensive. It's not the same to be an intensive producer that uh, uses waste to produce energy and uh, be part of the circular economy, and it's not the same to actually uh, ignore the environmental footprint. But there are also challenges in what is the two part from farm to fork, the food chain and trade, whether this trade is within the boundaries of a big entity, whether it's the European Union or that has a single market or the United States, or whether it is at world level. We are all those of us that are going to speak here, trade economists. So we know that trade increases overall welfare. And we've seen it with facts. 
but we also know that trade requires mechanisms whereby the winners will compensate the losers because it also comes with certain losers. The European Union is an interesti interesting example of trade liberalization within its boundaries that has such mechanism internally. The common agricultural policy is such a mechanism. The regional funds are such a mechanism. But these don't exist at world level and generate some concerns. Now, I will not focus much on the next slide, which you will have, but just as a reminder, this is a slide that started in January 2017 when we were preparing the CAP reform proposal. And in this analysis, we identified as achievements of the common agricultural policy, the increase in EU competitiveness, that's how the, we became the largest exporter in the world, the positive impact on jobs growth and poverty reduction, which came out with a study of the World Bank that uh, was done recently, and the relative income stability uh, for our farmers. I stress the term relative because farm income goes up and down, but there is a slight positive term, which is exactly the opposite of what is happening in this side of the Atlantic. But not everything was perfect. There has been a mixed environmental performance of EU agriculture, productivity growth was mainly driven by the outflow of labor from agriculture, although recently we have positive examples of innovation and investment. And there is a never-ending debate about equity, simplicity, and the safety net of the policy. And that in a completely changing world, where the expectations about the level of agricultural commodity prices <coughs> is anybody's guess. The world trade environment is what we know. And on top of that, and that's the most important thing for the Green Deal, we don't only have climate change, we have commitments that we have taken at world level about what to do to address climate change and to address the sustainability development goals. Now, only two slides from a very long list that we have produced about global greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. What you see here, and I was told that I can use this, is this is the level of emissions from India and China, uh, which has gone up by 24% over this period. This is the level of an increase of emissions for Brazil, plus 47%. The red line is the United States, which actually has gone up by 6%. And the blue line is the European Union, minus 22%. Does this mean that we solve the problems? Our answer has clearly been, it's not the case. Why? Because, oh, this is going backwards, because as you see, in recent years, we've reached a level of stagnation. The early very significant reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emissions was a result of policy reforms. The complete reduction in the level of price support, the move away from price support. The slower but significant progress afterwards had to do with the decoupling of agricultural support and the, con the conditionality that farmers had to do to receive payments. And what is happening in recent years is the exhaustion of the momentum of, of previous reforms, but also the fact that we reached a level without a new technological breakthrough, without the change in the manner by which we use best practices, we're not going to achieve the targets we have. So what did we propose? Those of you that are economists were always criticizing us for having very broad objectives of the common agricultural policy. Well, we listened and we made them more specific. There are three economic, three environmental, and three social objectives. 
From these objectives, I would like to focus to the fact that climate change action, environmental care, and biodiversity have been three main priorities of the proposal that we made for the future common agricultural policy. And where you see in the social uh, area this food and health quality, this is an area where one of the indicators were introduced was on antimicrobial uh, use. The second was on pesticides. So already anticipating what would happen and all with a need to achieve sustainability, modernization, and simplification targets. Let's be clear. When you work in public policy, nothing is going to ever be perfect. And you're going to be squeezed and criticized from all sides, especially if you do the analysis for these proposals. But what we try to do is try to anticipate the new type of challenges we face and adjust our policy accordingly. And what we have proposed is at the level of the European Union, we have these objectives, a set of common indicators to measure the performance of the policy, and broad types of interventions, measures, that more or less remain the same. We add some, like eco-schemes, on the environmental front. And we give more flexibility to the member states to identify their needs, introducing strategic plans, what they want to do with these needs, tailor their interventions to these needs, and implement progress towards targets. To make a very long story very short, the criticism of this approach has been, where is the necessary level of ambition? And the necessary level of ambition is going to come not only once we know the strategic plans, but on the manner by which they're going to be developed. What we have done is we introduced the possibility of an early stakeholders consultation, a link of the strategic plans to other national strategies on environment, on climate action, and other type of programs. But more importantly, the starting point has to be the latest available information on evidence. So when you do your strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats analysis, the SWOT analysis in our jargon, you have to be able to demonstrate, first of all, what lessons have you learned from the current state of the environment, and what additional measures are going to be taken. Now, as long as these uh, provisions stay in the proposal that we made, then the level of ambition could be one that would meet the requirements we have. So the criticism should not be on the intentions. The criticism should be on whether there are going to be changes that will threaten this development. Now here comes the Green Deal, which is a communication already published, and here will come by the 25th of March, the Farm to Fork strategy that will try to clarify things. When we are in the process of preparing this, I'm not going to reveal any secrets today. But what I will say is remind people on what already exists in the Green uh, Deal communication. The first thing is that the strategic plans, which have to be based exactly on the analysis of needs, become the link to the national climate strategies and the CAP policy measures. It is the determination of the overall objective of the European Union to arrive at a reduction of emissions. We're going to do the, uh, the impact assessment now on how we can arrive at minus 50 or minus 55 percent by 2030 instead of minus 40 percent we have identified. That will determine what exactly uh, member states have to do to better link 
their strategies to this. We have also introduced the target for a significant reduction in input use in fertilizers, pesticides, and antibiotics. I mentioned before the indicators on pesticides and antibiotics. What we have also done is we introduced much more focus on the nutrient balance in the soil, which is an extremely good measurement of what you have to do. And we have also uh, put there as an overall uh, priority the boosting of the organic production with a, with a balanced growth of both supply and demand measures. Uh, I would only like to stress one point before I leave it for further discussion. The overall philosophy of this approach of the common agricultural policy is to try to use as a lever exactly the central policy element that we have, which is area-based payments. Because we think that if you do good things to the soil, you do at the same time good things to air, to water, and especially to biodiversity. And it is exactly around this debate of what are the best practices that improve soil conditions and what are the best policy measures and the best distribution of support to help in that direction that we hope that would, al would allow us to make the fundamental shifts we want to do in our policy from being a policy whose focus has been on compliance to turning into a policy whose focus has been on performance. There is plenty of additional information if you're interested here, and I'm pretty sure there are going to be even more coming in the, in the weeks and months to come. And with that, I will stop here, and I would like to thank you for your attention. Thank you, Tassos, um, for that uh, excellent presentation, which I'm sure is going to generate lots and lots of, of uh, questions. Now, it's very common for people to say um, the next speaker needs no introduction. But on this particular occasion, it's true. Our next speaker, first discussant, is Jo Swinnen, Director General of the International Food Policy Research Institute. Over to you, Jo. Thank you. Tassos, I thought you were going to give much more slides. You were very disciplined in uh, <laughs> the thing, so. <laughs> I had some questions based on the slides which you're which in your annex now, I guess. So, Okay, so a couple of points, <clears throat> then uh, fairly general points, because the, the presentation was also um, fairly general. I mean, I think the, the ambition which speaks for it is uh, impressive. <clears throat> now, the uh, the way you presented it is uh, <clears throat> you didn't present any data in terms of the specifics by numbers and things like that. So I think one the first question would be, can you maybe say a little bit more about uh, some of the numbers that we're looking at or that are being discussed in Brussels? The second point is that <clears throat> um, EU decision making on the common agricultural policy, uh, and particularly when we think about the from farm to fork approach, is now much more, um, how should I say, it's kind of moving out of the agricultural area or DG agriculture and, and rural development to a larger extent, I think, than in the past. I mean, in the past we've had also, obviously, when the, the Uruguay Round Agreement was being discussed or WTO, the trade uh, 
uh, director general is important. Uh, the budget is obviously important. So the finance ministers matter. But now also, I think uh, Sanko plays into a much more important role, which is the sanitary and, and health division and the environmental division. And so the question there is, um, I know there's no Chatham rules because there's lots of people watching. <laughs> so feel free. But knowing Tassos, he will say something about it anyhow. Okay, so if you want to reflect on that or say a little bit how you think this is affecting the, the ultimate outcome of the decision making. Um, the, the one thing which is maybe give you a little bit of background, there's a lot of discussion in Europe right now on this, uh, the, the whole vision or the strategy of the common agriculture policy to go back to the member states to a much larger degree than has been the case in essentially since the creation of the policy in the 1960s and the 1970s, okay? And so, <clears throat> Tassos, you said, well, you should not criticize, them the, criticize the idea, you should criticize the implementation later on, roughly. I mean, I didn't. Um, but, you know, if the idea is fundamentally flawed, I think we can raise some critical questions on that. So I'm not saying it's uh, fundamentally flawed, but I do have the, it's obviously that monitoring and enforcement is going to be crucial, okay? And so can you say a little bit about how the... <laughs> Commission is envisioning or what expecting how it can monitor the uh, the implementation of the plan and enforce it if it is not going as uh, as planned. All right. And then uh, my last point is the following: If you by going by basically setting general targets, right, but you're going to basically then go to the member states and ask each of the member states to basically come up with country-specific targets. Um, are you not reducing the potential benefits from having the European Union there? In the sense that essentially you're doing away with scale economies in terms of policy implementation. That means if you can reduce some of these uh, targets in a much more efficient way in country A, okay, compared to country B, well, that's what scale economies do, right? So you would do it in A and not in B because it's much less uh, exp <coughs> expensive there. That's the idea behind the tradable uh, basically CO2 uh, permits in any case, okay? And so the question is, do you envisage that maybe in the EU in the future there may be something as basically something like the uh, basically tradable emission permits, but then maybe for pesticide reductions or um, <clears throat> other types of uh, targets that you have? I'll leave it at this. Um, our second discussant, uh, Anne Tutwiler, um, brings a wealth of experience to uh, our discussion today uh, and served for seven years, um, the past seven years more or less, uh, as uh, the Chief Executive of Bioversity International, um, the CG Centre. Um, she remains Chair of Bioversity um, United States as well as being a Senior Fellow at the Meridian Institute uh, in DC. Uh, prior to her work with Bioversity, um, she was Deputy Director General of the Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome for two years, um, covering pretty much all the important parts uh, of, the, of the FAO. Earlier in her career, she served as a Senior Advisor to the US Secretary of Agriculture um, and helped to promote a lot of research on trade issues while at the uh, Hewlett Foundation. So it's a great pleasure to hand over to Anne for her comments uh, on today's presentation. Thank you, Anne. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Will, and thank you, Tassos, for reminding uh, all of us how long ago it was that we, we met and, uh, for me, how I got into the whole agriculture business uh, to begin with. Um, so as usual, it's very hard to comment on Tassos' presentation because it is so thorough and so um, sort of organized and structured. But I, I wanted to um, just make a couple of comments. So um, when I last saw Tassos, I was in Brussels and he had invited me to speak at the um, EU Ag Outlook. And I was there to talk to um, the European officials about uh, a coalition that I've been asked to lead on repurposing agricultural subsidies to support uh, climate mitigation, climate adaptation, environmental quality, nutrition, and health. And I think one of the things I came away with after having the conversations um, with a number of people in the, in the Commission was, first of all, far too complicated for the Commission to sign on to anything uh, that's sort of externally led. But in fact, the Commission is doing most of what we are hoping to accomplish with this policy coalition, which is basically talking about how can we take the $570 billion that we are spending every year on agricultural subsidies around the world, of which about, I think, 15 percent, is that the number, is spent on public goods, and really transition that into having more public money going to invest in public goods. So I, I have only to applaud the Commission for having sort of the vision to really um, embrace this whole idea of, re of rethinking what we are doing with our policy support to promote um, the issues and ad adapt to the issues that uh, Toss has mentioned in his first couple of slides. Um, you know, one of the things he talked about, um, and all of us are very cognizant of the fact that we have losers who will um, be coming out of this, um, any transition that we talk about. But the Food and Land Use Coalition um, issued a report back uh, that was presented here a few weeks ago, I guess. And, you know, aside from highlighting the fact that we are destroying about $2 trillion um, annually in uh, value addition to the ag sector through the cost of, to health, to cost of environment, um, et cetera, with a relatively modest investment of around 300 to 350 billion dollars a year, we can create economic opportunities of 4.5 uh, trillion dollars. So I think this is part of the trick that Tassos mentioned of how can we, um, with a relatively modest investment of public and private sector money, create those kinds of economic opportunities that will help producers but also others in the two, and I love the, the, the farm two fork, in that two part to really take advantage of new opportunities. Um, just a couple of sort of comments. I think, you know, the first issue in any policy reform is the political will and the recognition of the problem, and I think, you know, that's um, at least at the Commission level um, quite evident. Um, one of the key challenges, and I think Yo mentioned this a little bit, is we don't have institutions that are aligned with those understandings. And, you know, we have environment divisions, um, ag, the ag, DG Agri, DG Environment, and Health and Sanitary, DG Sante, who all have different understandings of the problem. And I think that would be an interesting thing to hear you talk about, how to overcome those. 
Um, one of the other challenges I see as we talk about a lot of these issues is that the climate emergency is so much felt and so much upon us, you know, but that's not the only emergency we have. We have the slowly um, emerging problem of health and nutrition. So how do we balance those objectives about improving health, improving, um, you know, nutrition for people when those are sort of s slower evolving emergencies, if you will? Um, the other point and that came up when I was at the Ag Outlook, um, the farmers were very quiet until kind of the end. And then, you know, some of these issues around livestock and, and meat production started uh, emerging, and there were the farming farmers who were there were a lot less quiet about their concerns about how things are evolving. Um, and in conversations with some of the European farmers afterwards, issues that they raised to me were, you know, Europe has had a traditionally risk-averse stance towards new technologies, and I'm not just talking about biotech, I'm, I'm broader than that. So if we are thinking about Ag 4.0, you know, how do we square that um, sort of um, risk aversion with the need to really create new business opportunities and to offer farmers new ways of doing business um, that may involve some risk that consumers sometimes won't, won't be willing to take on. And then the last point um, that came up, and I see Astrid um, there in our convening that we had for the policy repurposing in Berlin, you know, how is this going to affect third parties? Because there was a, a conversation between the uh, trade, DG Trade, saying, you know, we're not going to accept any products into Europe that don't meet our standards. And so, you know, which is completely understandable from the perspective of EU farmers, saying we don't want to be undermined. but we do have a, a relatively open trade uh, regime, so how is that, how are those new standards for Europe going to affect farmers in developing countries? Thanks. At this time we normally would move straight to a panel, but I just wondered if, uh, Tassos, have you had any very specific re replies to any of the comments that you'd like to, to offer very briefly? Yeah, I will be on some of them. I will be very brief because I mentioned before that when we're discussing internally, you're not going to get any numbers. You and you knew when you asked the question. <laughs> uh, on the member states, however, and the, the whether the idea is flawed or not, we tried already last time around with the previous reform to move towards what we called greening, focusing also much more to environmental priorities. The lesson we learned from this approach is that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. And it doesn't work not only among member states, but within member states. And that's why, for us, the starting point should be a needs-based approach, where you do different things depending on the type of problem that you have to solve. Is this perfect? I don't know. But whether it's flawed or not, I think we base our approach on, on something, on the lessons from the past. Now, on, uh, on the policy coordination and coherence, uh, Listen, there is all sort of theories going out there and sometimes conspiracy theories about how we work in the European Commission. But first of all, the proposals that we make are proposals of the European Commission. They're not proposals of DG Agri. They go through the college of all commissioners. Second, before these proposals go out, we go through an internal process that is also based on an impact assessment. And the impact assessment, 20 DGs participated, 
more than 14 were very actively participants, and you can really see and sense in uh, the impact assessment the fact that when you have different starting points, as you also mentioned, this is not necessarily a contradiction. This is complementarity, and you can turn it into complementarity. And I think we have the tendency to believe that somehow we have some fortresses that we have to give battles. It's exactly the opposite. What we have is different experiences that we have to see what they tell us based on evidence and how we bring together the different aspects. And the need to have policy proposals that are more coherent started exactly with the trade aspects. That's why we reduced the, the level of price support, because it didn't make sense from a competitiveness and economic point of view. And what we have to do now is try to make sure that, and that is diffic difficult, clearly, that when we talk about environmental, uh, economic, and social aspects, they, tend, they have to move in the, the same direction, if we really are serious about sustainability. Now, on uh, the reducing uh, the benefits, there are certain things where you cannot trade off between member states. You cannot say, okay, you reduce your pesticides more, and then I have more luxury. The type of targets which set in the Green Deal are targets that everybody has to do what they have to do. Clearly, the levels uh, might be different in different parts, especially if your starting point is what if you look at the nutrient balance in the soil, for example. You do different things where you have hot spots where you have to reduce dramatically fertilizer and different things where you have maybe a deficit. But overall, the mentality is that we have to realize that there are certain things that have to change. How they change? Well, somebody criticized something, a quote that they found for me in one line out of context, gradually. Well, there are some things that happen gradually. The first thing that we have to make sure is the process that of change is irreversible. And second, by expanding knowledge and best practices, this process accelerates. And that is going to determine the potential uh, success or not. Uh, on investment, uh, there is a lot of discussions going on also with the European Investment Bank to try to link uh, uh, these things. Uh, now, on the health issues, there's a big debate. That's why we're doing together that with DigiSante. Many of the issues related to health are lifestyle issues. I mean, you can have the most sustainable product coming out from the farming sector. If we consume it in the most unsustainable way, then there is a health problem. Eh? So and we have to combine uh, different things. It's true that farmers were quiet in the beginning. And it's true that lately they have a feeling that there is a lot of bashing and uh, everybody is thinking that if they solve the farming problem, uh, somehow all mirac miracles will happen. I mean, I was thinking recently that we might have gone from, to use some uh, analysis of the past, from the end of history to the end of farming. Farming will be around. It's going to be different, but it will be around for a very simple reason. In all basic human needs, food, shelter, energy, transport, clothing, the problems I mentioned before about the food systems apply everywhere. But food will always remain the basic human need. So we need to see how we do things better with farmers and not against uh, farmers. And the biggest problem that we see in them is, I come to the last point about technology. 
Well, in Europe, and not only Europe, I mean, the perceptions about science differ. Science, and I've said it already 20 years ago when I was coming out of my uh, term here in Washington, science is not the provision of truth, the absolute truth. It's a provision of truth with a confidence interval, a margin of error. And what this confidence interval is depends a lot on the specific situation in different parts of the world. If you look about climate change, climate change affects diseases in a dramatic way, whether these are human diseases, animal diseases, or plant diseases. The manner by which we address technologies that could solve potentially these issues is not the same. It is normal. Why do we use the full spectrum of technologies when it comes to human health that affects us, and we don't go to the full way when it comes to plant health? Because what we see in plant health, which is the potential impact on environment, is assessed in a completely different way than what we see when it comes to our own body and what we can do about that. So that debate and other type of debates is not going to go magically away, but what we have to do, and that's the role also of organizations like IFPRI and other international organizations, if we really ha need to have an educated debate about what is happening, we need to start having trust in basic numbers and facts. And this is one of the issues where we have really gone backwards. And one of the most typical examples is that when you look at farm advisory systems around the world, they're not what they used to be. We tell farmers, change your practices. The next question that comes is, okay, I'm ready to do it. What am I supposed to do? Where are they going to find the answer? Some, they will do it in big companies or private advisors. Not everybody has the capacity to do that. So how do we bridge this gap of knowledge, advice, applications will be, in my view, one of the most crucial uh, things, bets that we have to win if we want to actually arrive at having a much more open mind on some of these issues. Thank you, Tassos, for those spirited uh, responses. It's now time for us to uh, form the panel. I call on all the speakers to come to the, the chairs at the front. Um, and I call on all members of the audience in the room and online to be thinking <coughs> of those short, sharp questions um, for, uh, for the panel. Thanks um, for excellent presentation. Also, good questions were raised. Um, I had more question on political economy. Uh, let me first say before I was, I'm glad to see there's not a European Green Deal. I, 12 years ago, wrote a piece, a global Green Deal, but I guess because I wrote it for the UN, it didn't get much traction. So I'm glad to see that this is happening now. But when it comes to agriculture and agriculture support and change, um, we know it's it's very politically sensitive, um, particularly in Europe. Uh, so my country, the Netherlands, um, farmers have been on the streets or off the fields on, on the streets with their tractors um, to protest all kinds of new measures. Uh, and partly if the problem, there, there are two problems there. One is changing policies, so they don't know what, what to target in terms of uh, their future production. And second is it's not always clear who are the winners and losers in this process. So what's, what are the political economy considerations you have to do here for particularly, will probably be costly to implement these measures in the short run to have 
spin-off, particularly social spin-offs, in the long run. So how are you going to sell this to the farmers, but also to consumers who may have to pay a higher price for food if we go through these uh, changes? So the question is, what are what political economy calculations uh, have you made to s to start selling this plan? Let's let's take three questions. I think uh, if we have three questions, uh, yes, the the lady in the second row. If you could just give your name and affiliation, please. Yasmin Sadat, a 31-year uh, retiree of the World Bank Group. Um, just actually an information piece. Would you have any databases or websites at IFPRI or the, the, under the US agencies or the Europeans of having an inventory of what are the affordable technologies that can be propagated in emerging markets uh, from you know, water, soil, or crop yields. Thanks. Hello, my name is Dan Silverstein. Uh, sir, you, you just used the word, of all the interesting things that you said, you just used the word that, that jumped into my head, and it was the word irreversible. You said we want to make these changes irreversible. It seems to me that this is, all of what we're talking about is some, has some function of political will. People have to be willing to want to deal with this to uh, see it progress. Certainly, we in the United States understand that uh, signing the Paris Agreement can be changed with a successive administration and all kinds of things. So, how do you um, it, how do you see making these changes irreversible? I guess that's my question. Thanks. Yeah, three excellent questions. Uh, Tassos, I call on you first to give your replies and then other members of the panel if you'd like to weigh in briefly. There you go. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, um, to be able to answer these questions, I have to make clear where I'm coming from. And where I'm coming from, I don't know if it's an advantage or a disadvantage, but it's a fact. I'm not a politician. Which means that the choices that the politicians will have to make will have to be based based on what we are uh, there to offer on clear policy options where they have to weigh the pros and cons of who wins, who loses from the different scenarios and where do they put the biggest weight. It doesn't make sense to talk about sustainability in theoretical terms. It has an economic, an environmental, and a social impact. And there are trade-offs in between. Which of those are they going to be able to base their decision on? And where are they going to go? That's their responsibility. Our responsibility as civil servants that work in the preparation of these proposals is to make sure that what we actually do is based on the latest available information we have and honesty in the analysis we're doing. And I mentioned before the impact assessment not by accident. The impact assessment that we coordinated last time around made a very conscious choice of not proposing a what is called preferred option. We took an option that was pushing too much on the economic side one that was pushing too much on the social and one that was pushing too much on the environmental side to show what are the impacts. And the proposal we made had a combination of these elements exactly because it allowed 
people to weigh the pros and cons. That's uh, as far as we can go. And in the f limited time that I still have as a civil servant, I can say that I'm still proud that at least we have a group in DG Agri, and you all, more than anybody else has seen it, that has been working in this way. Now, of course, it requires political will to take decisions, but it also requires a different way of communicating, especially when, and I bring two questions in one here, in how we go to demonstrating affordable technologies. You raised something very correct. Do farmers know what are these technologies? We have an innovation partnership in agriculture in the European Union with more than 2,000 groups. One of the strengths we have seen, it's a bottom-up approach that shows what you can do. One of the weaknesses is they don't communicate to each other. And this is where we have to work. And by working like that, then we can also provide some concrete examples that will show that this process could be irreversible and at the same time provide something that 20 years ago the OECD already mentioned. When I mention the word jointness, people laugh at me sometimes. Eh? But there is such a thing as a possibility to combine economic and environmental efficiency. And we see it on the ground. Farmers are not going to listen to us because we're bureaucrats and tell them that. But they will listen to the other farmers that apply it on the ground and they see that brings results. Further interventions from the, from the panel? You know, on the issue of political economy, um, I mean, I, two points I would raise. So, so one, you know, I think what Europe is doing and what this, you know, coalition that I'm working on is doing, we're not saying to that we should be cutting the support to the ag sector. We're talking about repurposing or shifting the support to reward farmers for other objectives and other behaviors. And I think that helps the political economy conversation from the one we had, you know, 20 years ago where everybody was saying, well, let's just liberalize and get rid of these subsidies. Um, but I think the other challenge that we have, you know, as we, um, you know, civil servants, um, you know, help to politicians to inform this, this change, you know, if farmers only see, or, or anybody only sees one piece that somebody's going to raise their taxes on, you know, fuel, and they don't see the other parts of, you know, how am I going to be compensated um, or how am I I'm going to be paid for improving soil quality, then of course you're going to be upset. And so I think what's been happening is, you know, we've been rolling out small bits of a reform agenda without putting, in fact, the big picture in front of farmers or those who have to really, you know, embrace the changes. And I think it's one thing to me that the farm to fork um, is a huge you know, benefit because it really is putting all of it on the table at once. It's ambitious as heck, but it does show the direction of travel and I think helps people figure out how, how it's all going to fit. Uh, actually, I'm going to invite some of the people in the room here from IFRI who may be able to respond to your specific questions on the data sets, on the uh, uh, basically the affordable technologies, because we do have quite a bit of work uh, on that in different divisions within IFPRI, but I think the division directors, some of whom are here, uh, probably are in a better position to comment on that specifically. Uh, <clears throat> I think the, uh, also in terms, I mean, basically my comment is also about the political economy, but it addresses some 
both Rob's question and, and uh, Mr. Silverstein's question in a general way. I think <clears throat> for me the major benefit of uh, our argument for basically doing the uh, the country-specific reductions, such as Tassos has presented them, is political rather than economic. Okay, I think from an economic perspective, it is not the most efficient way because the most efficient way is basically that's what environmental economics tells you, doing it there where it hurts less, okay, and then basically <coughs> redistribute it somehow to basically those parts of Europe where they can basically most, in the most cost-effective way, reduce some of these uh, <coughs> environmental damages as we have them now. The political economy is very different, okay? The political economy now is that, ba that means you basically are distributing income, welfare somehow, or cost within Europe, across member state board, and that's politically very difficult because that creates immediately opposition to the reforms, okay? So if we go back, some of the major reforms in agricultural policy in Europe have been where the policy makers have been very careful, or the, pol the guys, the ladies and gentlemen who designed the policy reform were very careful to make sure there was no redistribution of money across member states. Okay, it was very explicitly in their mind. Okay, Tassos cannot comment on this, but he knows very well that's true. And, uh, <laughs> and so it was explicit in the 2003 reform. So the 2003 reform changed the nature of how agriculture was subsidizing its farmers, but not the amount, and it did not affect basically the subsidies across borders okay the um, and so i think that's is from a political economy point there the country specific reductions and these plans i think are very important in terms of what makes it sustainable i think there's two things which make things sustainable one is that uh, when people are investing in this new under this new policy uh, guidelines or the new policies or regulations that are put in place and basically you create vested interests of keeping it there okay that's the first thing and that can be the farmers themselves who basically use new technologies etc or different um, different members of society who get involved the second one is when people actually after the policies have been introduced realize actually it's not so bad okay it is actually as good as those who basically uh, favored the policies had been predicting for example, in Europe, what I found very surprising was when you had the big price fluctuations in the mid-2000s, uh, I thought there would be a big demand from the farmers to go back to the old uh, common agricultural policy system with basically price support, fixed prices, etc. And that was, there were some calls, but generally not very much. Okay, And so that means essentially that the farmers had bought into the new policy system as it is today. So and that makes it, I think, sustainable from that perspective. Thanks very much, Joe. Uh, yeah, um, we normally have uh, way more people uh, online, so I'm interested in a take uh, on our online audience and perhaps a couple of questions from online. Could we have those? Yes, uh, so we have questions from four um, people here. Uh, Kaka Nadiraz from the Association for Farmers' Rights Defense, Georgia. What do you think regarding the overproduction of food and feed within the EU and how the common agricultural policy may solve further food quotas, especially with Brexit, new members and non-members, uh, non-members interventions on the EU market who have signed FTAs? Second one is Andrew Long, a trustee for Andrew Lee's Trust, Belgium. 
How do we use the common agricultural policy reform to give a boost to a shift in dietary habits away from the red meat consumption? The third one is Stefan Swarer from Global CAD Barcelona, Spain. What is the vision for a carbon neutral EU agriculture by 2050 and what role does the livestock sector in meat consumption play given its carbon footprint? And the second one from him is how does the farm to food strategy actually intend to address the mentioned dietary shifts that are needed? And the last one is Lioneth Hinoyosa from UC Duvain. How will the EU deal with tensions between agricultural and environmental policies and the trade-offs between more nature and wilderness to the detriment of less farming, for example, the wolf livestock debate? Thanks. Great. Uh, there's a great clutch of questions uh, from, from online. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tassos, uh, would you like to take the first stab at uh, answering that? Uh, yes, uh, the first one, uh, first of all, I, it's not my feeling that we have an issue of overproduction of food and feed in the European Union. Uh, on the contrary, I think we moved uh, out of this uh, as with respect to the FTAs. I mean, they, the way the FTAs are drafted in, are in a manner that takes into account and tries to avoid the need for any uh, dramatic impacts on production. So I think if one looks at the, the overall uh, uh, trade statistics and also the overall trends as we go, uh, the, the issue is not overproduction. It's the issue of distribution of food around the world. And that one of the big challenges is that if we look around different regions of the world, we find uh, uh, that the biggest deficits that we have are in Asia and in Africa. The biggest surplus we have is in Latin America. Asia has GDP growth that allows it to buy some of these foods. It's a question mark what type of development strategies we will have for Africa, but I leave that to the experts. But that's what comes out when you see the overall uh, trade flows. Now, all the other questions are more or less related to diets, habits, and livestock. Uh, I think we have to be very clear about the manner by which we address the debate between food and health. Uh, you will see in a written speech I give, uh, I, I think this is one of the paradoxes of modern life. Food used to be associated with, with health in a positive, as a positive externality, now it has become a negative externality. It's neither one or the other. There is a certain amount of meat that is necessary in human consumption. There are choices on whether we eat meat or not that are also personal and have to be absolutely respected. But the world as we see it will always has, have a certain level of production coming from livestock. And that in itself is neutral. It's neither positive or negative. It becomes positive or negative when we look at the environmental footprint, and it becomes positive or negative when we look at the big gap between obesity, for example, and hunger. What we would like to do is not impose dietary patterns on consumers, but nudge them to more healthy dietary patterns, and that will be one of the challenges of the farm to fork. And we'll see when it comes how to address it. I will not focus so much on this element, 
but I will focus much more on the production part and what is the role of the production of red meat. I was doing my graduate studies in the US, and this is many, many, many years ago, when the first debate about the link of uh, deforestation and livestock production started. And it started for an internal debate in the US about which is the best uh, hamburger, by the way. The world has changed dramatically since then, but one of the dramatic changes has been the fact that red meat consumption in all the developed world is going down. Look at the statistics and the numbers. Pork production is pretty much stabilized. Chicken is moving up. Second thing that is characteristic is not all types of extensive red meat production are the same. It's one thing to produce in grassland, and it's another thing to produce in intensive feedlots. And when we think that we can replace the extensive livestock production with something else, the first question we have to ask ourselves and give an answer is, what will happen to this grassland if it stops being grassland? Because if it turns into something else, the emissions that will go up in the air are going to be enormous. And it's also, I mean, I, the FAO study was saying that about 85% of what animals eat, humans don't eat. So what I want to stress with the livestock debate is not that there are not arguments in one or the other way, but the situation is extremely complex. And if we had some rabbit to pull out of a hat, we would have solved the problem already. But this doesn't exist. And exactly because it doesn't exist, the first thing we have to do is focus on the real facts and not imaginary ones. The second is respect the changes in dietary patterns that happen and allow these dietary happens to link the final consumer with the producer. And the third thing, and that's very important, this is where new technologies help through traceability to actually link the final consumer with the producer by telling them that what I claim that I'm producing in a sustainable way, one or the other way, is exactly what you're asking for. And maybe in that way, we can arrive at a new balance between what is healthy that also respects what are the overall trends of societies that, as anything else, have been shifting throughout time. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> the, I just want to add <clears throat> one thing to the discussion here that is that there is right now at IFPRI, and <clears throat> I'm sitting next to Will, actually, Will should say that, that he's the moderator because he's been involved in, in this work. We're doing quite a bit of work on trying to measure how basically the effect of agricultural subsidies is affecting not just incomes of farmers, but also the environment, okay? And so some of these results, I think these results are really interesting because they are they're showing that the world is complex, which I always think is a good thing because that means you capture reality, right? And so they show, for example, that <coughs> I think uh, if Tassos has not seen it, he will be pleased with this result, that in the case of decoupling subsidies, is that it's a win-win situation. So it's good for the efficiency. It's also good for reducing emission uh, emissions. In terms of tariffs, the effect seems to be a bit more complicated and depending on the nature of the commodity, et cetera, and things. But it's really exciting research. It's fairly start relatively uh, recently, but I think it will have a big impact on, on the global discussion. Maybe, Will, you want to add something on that? or? Yeah. No, thank you. I mean, that's, uh, that's exciting, exciting work. It's, uh, it, it relates to the work uh, that Anne mentioned in the Folu, Folu, Folu 
Um, uh, you know, there are all sorts of, of surprises there. You know, productivity gains can reduce emissions, especially if those productivity gains are really targeted to emissions. The broader uh, saving all inputs productivity gains, you get quite a bit of a, of a rebound effect. Um, and of course, the coupled subsidies are actually quite problematic because they are subsidies to high emission intensity uh, activities ex unambiguously expand output and expand uh, emissions. So yeah, there's some interesting uh, research results there and watch this space, there'll be, there'll be lots more uh, coming, coming uh, along uh, in, the, in the future. Um, I think we have time for one more round of short, sharp questions. Just identify yourself. Yes, uh, the lady, uh, second from the back. Hi, um, my name's Naomi Pico. I'm actually a retired nonprofit worker and teacher. I'm currently a vegan in the community here in DC. Um, I remember with uh, studying international policy on environmental um, things, I guess, to encourage countries to uh, use like carbon tax credits and uh, to help the environment. And then uh, there was um, a lot of countries who jumped on the solar use of solar uh, and as well as the um, irrigate irrigation systems that were like hydroponic systems and everything like this. I was wondering, is that some of the new tech, um, you know, that your public policy is kind of focused on? And also, how does uh, GMO foods apply or not apply to the European Green Deal? Another Another question? Yes, the lady in the second row, um, speaker. Hi, my name's Kate Ivancic. I'm a soil scientist, agronomist. I work with an organization called Shelter for Life International, and I'm just interested about um, what your take is on food waste. And I, I was actually quite surprised not to hear anyone talk about it, so just give me a, a a, a brief overview on, on your thoughts. That would be great. Thanks. Um, we just have a couple quickly. Um, so this is another one from Andrew Long, trustee for Andrew Lee's Trust. How far are the big agri-industry corporations with massive investments in R&D and fertilizer and pesticide inputs behind this kind of ecological agri-reform? And Katerina Schroeder from the World Bank, does the new common agricultural policy envision any policy support to incentivize the adoption of digital technologies by the farmers of different sizes? And the last one's Nora Pister, gender specialist, German Weltunger Life. Given that gender equality is a driver and indicator of sustainability, what role does it take in the common agricultural policy and which innovative approaches are considered to foster gender equality for sustainability? Talking about beef, um, there's lots of beef here for the panel to get its, uh, 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 its teeth into. Thank you. Uh, let me start from re reverse order. Uh, I mean, there is on gender equality, the best way to address it is in the focus we're going to have on generational renewal. Because if you look at what is really happening on the ground, uh, where we have 
uh, a new generation of farmers coming in, exactly because this type of farming is much more knowledge-based. This is an area where we see also more uh, young women farmers coming in, also bringing in a lot of knowledge. I think that demographics in rural areas are extremely complex. There's going to be a strategy next year about uh, the vision for rural areas that will come out uh, from the European Commission. We're in the process of looking at these issues. But one of the most important things to have more gender balance in agriculture is to have rural areas attractive so uh, people can stay in these particular areas. That's why the type of infrastructure measures that are taken are extremely important. Even where the farming sector is important in rural er areas, it's the overall growth that is coming from the rest of the economy that will be extremely important and help, help there. On the digital technology, there are a lot of measures uh, and a lot of projects going on to try to help uh, farmers moving in that direction. Uh, I can provide if anybody wants uh, sites where you can find out there are projects from DigiResearch, but also projects that we will put as part of the farm to fork actions to push in that direction. And there is also a lot of the ground. What people tend to forget, this is one of the areas that Europe is really leading the world, not only in terms of satellite images, but uh, the provision of these satellite images free to everybody. That's the Copernicus system. And that has helped a lot in giving information that you link it with the digital uh, digitalization is very important. Of course, if you don't have internet connection in rural areas, this becomes a problem. Uh, the big ag uh, tech, uh, everybody is behind and is trying uh, to sell that. The important thing is what you measure on the ground. In Europe, the structure of agriculture is much more mixed and it's less uh, centralized than other parts. Uh, the, the, the private and public partnerships are more important. That's why I raised the issue of data before, but the confidentiality of data is one of the issues that pops up. And there's a very interesting protocol of, protocol of cooperation between the, the industry and the farmers' organizations, which I think in Europe is exceptional. Food waste, mea culpa, is going to be very uh, strong emphasis on that. One thing that is not clear is which is the level where you have most of food waste. Is it on retail? Is it in the processing? Is it at the farm level and how you measure it? But we will try to take, make actions that turn this in part of the uh, circular economy. On the, uh, I mean, there is, on the type of new technologies, there is no specific definition, this is good, this is bad. Everything comes in, including hydroponics, including also type of uh, initiatives that are around cities, because I think one of the things we haven't mentioned is more than 50% of the world population now, everywhere is living in cities. So that type of uh, farming becomes uh, very important. On GMOs, I mean, on GMOs is like any other technology. It is the scientific assessment that is the starting point for accepting or not accepting uh, at least the proposal of the Commission uh, new varieties. Uh, there is a debate uh, that is taking place forever in Europe. I was at the beginning of this debate based here, and I know the starting point, which had to do the very different push on biotechnology at the time that we were recovering from the mad gout disease. That had a, a very important impact on the what I called before the confidence interval uh, of uh, people. But uh, technologies are what they are, perceptions are what they are. Uh, we have to focus on the benefits, the risks, to be able to identify much more clearly what will happen. But there are other practices 
with more conventional technologies or some with even older technologies that have been forgotten that also are important. That's why I stress once more, it, we have to change our mentality completely. If we want to shift the policy, we have to start measuring what the policy delivers. And th this effort, every type of practice that will provide a benefit should be uh, rewarded. Yeah, Before we on, run out of time. Just yeah. on the um, question about fertilizers, last week I was speaking to the International Fertilizer Association's stewardship conference, um, and I think the level of seriousness with which the, the, ma the big fertilizer companies are really taking these issues and how they need to change their business model and be thinking about you know, soil health um, and providing solutions to farmers who are facing you know, very different policy re regime was stunning. It was really stunning. And, you know, it's not every company, but the big guys have figured out they need to change how they're doing business. I think for the fertilizer industry, one of the big challenges is, in fact, there haven't been very many technological innovations in that sector in 60-some years. So it's an area ripe for um, research and innovation. Just one word on the GMOs. It's not going to happen in Europe in the foreseeable future. The debate is so polarized that basically, and it's roughly 50-50, which means that, I explained it here on a panel a couple of weeks ago, okay, it's a bit complicated how the decision is, but in a way it means that everything's blocked on GMOs in Europe. The worst thing, I think, is on the CRISPR debate, because there the decision has been made by the, uh, the Court of Justice in Europe, which is not through the policy system, but through a judicial uh, de uh, declaration, and that has taken many people by surprise. And so I hope that on CRISPR there is a future for CRISPR commodities in Europe, but GMOs, I think, are out of the question in the foreseeable future. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank, thank you. All that remains now, I think, is a, a round of applause for our speakers, uh, our guests and questioners. Thank you. <laughs>